Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. This is our first episode, the purpose of which is to introduce you to the Drug Policy Voices project, telling you a little bit more about our aims and objectives and why we're here starting a podcast. I am Rebecca Askew, a Senior Lecturer in Criminology in the Department of Sociology at Manchester Metropolitan University. I lead the Drug Policy Voices Project with Melissa Bone, who's an Associate Professor at Leicester Law School. So first up, Melissa and I discuss how the project came about and our overall ethos. In the second part, I speak to Stuart Taylor, Senior Lecturer in Criminal Justice at Liverpool John Moores University about the term drug whether within debates about policy, consumption and supply, we should abandon the term or try and reclaim it. This is a debate that we'd like listeners to get involved in too, so we're looking forward to hearing your contributions and thoughts on that. More on how to do this later in the episode. So kicking off our first episode, Melissa and I had a video chat about how the project came about. So let's talk about where we first met, first of all. (laughs) Where did we first meet? Um, Okay, so (laughs) that was at the University of Manchester, wasn't it? Where we were both doing our PhD. Yes. Um, And I refer to it as the Great Flood of 2012. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, for our listeners, uh, yeah, what what happened, the Great Flood of 2012? Okay, so the Great Flood of 2012, the PhD offices all flooded. No Mm. other offices flooded in the entire building, did they? No. Hours, yeah, yeah. It, it was a very specialized localized flood, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which meant that depending on what year you were in with your PhD, you all just got scrambled and put into a room together like a temporary mm. room. So that's how we first met and realized, you know, we were both doing our PhD on drug policy. And, and you know, we know that the, the kind of Northwest really is a kind of hub, isn't it, for drugs researchers, substance use researchers, whatever you want to call us, um, but also thinking about drug policy as well and, and, you know, our interests in drug policy. So we're both interested in drug policy. We're all, both interested in the rights of people who use drugs. So we both attend the conference of the year in our eyes, the International Society for the Study of Drugs Policy. So that is obviously a society that brings together academics from uh, internationally, from around the globe, who are studying and researching in drug policy. So there's an annual conference every year, usually around May time. Um, And that was really good for us because we used to meet up there every year, didn't we? Definitely. Yeah. And they have them in some brilliant locations, don't they? I think we met up and we first started talking about these ideas in Australia. Yes. We were able to talk about them in Denmark and Canada. So yes, we've been very fortunate with that. Mm. Those conferences just have some incredible people there that are doing really cutting edge work in drug policy, uh, drug policy reform. So you were doing stuff on cannabis social clubs, weren't you? That's right. Yeah. So I was doing stuff on cannabis social clubs, looking at whether that model could be a, a safer, 
feasible, effective alternative to prohibiting cannabis, essentially. Um, and what I found very fascinating about that model and still do is that it's a grassroots initiative. It comes from the bottom up. It comes from people who use cannabis themselves and they have developed and created and evolved the, the model. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that links to your interests as well and both of our interests now when it comes to drug policy voices and wanting to amplify the voices of people who use substances or drugs. We will mm -hmm. talk about that terminology with uh, Stuart Taylor, won't we? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, yeah, so, so that, I think that's where we had those connections. And I also presented a paper, I think, at ISSDP on um, the health rights of medical cannabis users as well. So yes, I very much come from things from a human rights perspective and focusing on those individual rights when very often drug policy and prohibition itself it looks at the government's perspective and the state's perspective that mm. we need to control your use we need to for your own safety or for mm. other people's safety so it's basically just trying to balance that that tension between the state and between individuals and i think mm. amplify individual voices as well because for effective drug policy you need to hear from a wide array of people Yes, many, definitely. Yeah, as many voices as possible. Yeah, I think we're yeah we're both we're, we're both really passionate about that, like trying to include that wide range of voices, um, and I think yeah, and and that to be included in policy, and I think you know we want to connect people to policy, but also connect policy to people, and yeah. it, and it's it, it's thinking about that as well that we you know this isn't we you know we want to have that kind of we're very interested in the role between the citizen and the state. We'll talk more about how we brought that into our survey and how we'll think about that within kind of future research as well. Um, but I think, you know, from my perspective, because I'm so interested in policy, I've done like probably over a hundred interviews now with people about their personal substance use, uh, drug use. And one, I always ask the question at the end of the interview, so what do you think about policy? You know, do you think drugs should be legalized or decriminalized? And perhaps naively, I expected most people to be of, in favour of legalisation, to be kind of really anti-prohibition. But there was so much complexity to people's answers. For one thing, people didn't often understand the, the different terms. And of course, that's, that's understandable. It's something that we are going to try and deconstruct, aren't we, in future mm -hmm. podcasts. So, you know, what's the difference between legal regulation model, uh, you know, legalization versus decriminalization versus medicalization? So people often didn't feel like they had the, the kind of knowledge to answer the question on one side of things, or they would perhaps use the terms legalization and decriminalization kind of interchangeably just to yes. mean a reduction in criminalization in some form of way and people are often like you know things shouldn't be the way they are but i'm not quite sure and again it's that kind of thing of how we connect policy to people but what mm -hmm. people did have was experiences experiences of use and those are the people who for whom policy affects the most but you know our research is really about that it's not just those people who are politically engaged that we want to be involved or that really know the differences between those terms because we'll talk more about that but thinking more about kind of how those different voices and experiences can come into and we'll talk later on about values and how that's kind of informed our research so yeah, we had our conference catch-ups and I distinctly remember being in Denmark, so we're at Aarhus for the ISSDP. I remember the lunch was really nice there. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was 
the European capital of uh, the the year, wasn't it? It won an yes. award for being the European capital that year. So it was brilliant. It was a great year to be there, any, you know, anyway. Yes. But <laughs> there's loads of great things going on. Yes, there was some loads of good things. I remember just sat down and I remember saying, listen, I've got an idea. I think, you know, it's about drug takers, bringing people who use drugs into debates about policy. Do you want to, do you want to do something? Do you want to be like, and you were like really, really keen. Yes, <laughs> yes I do, yes I do. Yes, please, yes, please. <laughs> So um, for people who are listening or in academia, the academia takes a long time, doesn't it? So yeah. we kind of uh, wrote the proposal. Uh, we got that in. We, we applied to the ESRC. So that's the Economic and Social Research Council. Basically a project to try and engage people who use drugs into debates about policy reform in, in kind of innovative ways, in, in a way that we can try and draw together their experiences. So that's what, so the idea came from passion, I would say through yeah. you know thankfully our connection at the University of Manchester and how great it is to go to conferences that's something I don't know about you but during these Covid times that I have really missed like conferences are such a good way to connect with people within your field you know get to chat get to socialize as well as talk about you know the the kind of changes in research and uh, the different projects that people are, are working on and how we can take influence from from different countries as well because we were in Vancouver weren't we just before the the recreational cannabis laws came in but there was a medical system wasn't there go on yes there was and I was just going to say that that's another thing I find fascinating about these conferences that we get to see how different countries are enacting various drug policies and how they're engaging with um, different sort of um, regulatory models so we started the project and I had some data from um, my enhancement um, substance use project. So the project was all about trying to um, kind of talk about different types of substance use that goes beyond this kind of recreational uh, and uh, problematic dichotomy that we've got. So when we say drug taker, we either say, oh, you're a recreational user or you're somebody who's problematic. But we know that there's lots of in between. And part of that project was to build those voices about psychedelics, about study drug use, cognitive enhancement, uh, cannabis use for creativity. It might be cannabis use for pain, uh, from the, like kind of more medical cannabis use. But within that, I'd ask people about their views on policy. And then you and I wrote an article together, which drew together some of your work that you've done around the kind of philosophical positions of drugs. Yes. Uh, and and then uh, also, obviously, my work has been around kind of discourse analysis and looking at how people frame their use within those kind of philosophical positions. And I don't think we'll go too much into that now, but it was really kind of, as we've spoken about before, around people's kind of lack of understanding sometimes of those different terms. That's really kind of been the baseline, I think, for this project to go, right, OK, we need to try and educate and inform people and try and increase people's knowledge. And also, and your brilliant term, amplify those voices as well amplify lots of the different various voices so we wrote that paper then we spent a long time in 2019 and early 2020 devising our survey didn't we yes we did yeah so so the survey was completed 
uh, you'll find in our website there's a link to an audience with Rebecca Askew and that's where I talk about the kind of descriptive statistics and during these podcasts what we're going to do is is talk about the the research findings talk a little bit more detail in into different parts of the survey so we're about to go into our kind of qualitative fieldwork. So qualitative fieldwork, for those who don't know it, is when we start doing things such as interviews, we start kind of engaging people with different ways. And, you know, we've been working on doing these podcasts because we want to kind of build this into our research. So COVID scuppered our plans for what we were originally going to do, didn't it? It did indeed, yes. <laughs> scuppered everybody's plans <laughs> for 2020. That's <laughs> Exactly. But that's not necessarily I mean for this project at least I think it gave us a chance and it gave a lot of people a chance didn't it just to sit back take stock you know mm. we, we were able to think okay well actually this project is all about engagement and amplifying those voices and mm. being participatory and the podcasts are designed to do that and we perhaps wouldn't have done those mm. otherwise so it is it it's led us to think about more creative research methods hasn't it so there's Definitely, which I think is really important because one of the things that we've been thinking about is that, you know, our idea was that we were going to have some workshops and we were going to have debates. But I think the ways in which we're going to try and engage people goes beyond just speaking, doesn't it? It's going to be, you know, thinking more, um, you know, for people to write, for people to engage in different types of methods. So hopefully it will encourage a broader sense of engagement. As you say, it has, it has made us kind of rethink, but perhaps in a way that the, the project needed anyway. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's going to be all for the benefit, really. And I think the thing that I'm most looking forward to is engaging with this counter storytelling that mm. we're going to be doing as part of the podcast. I really want mm. to change that narrative, shift that narrative, engage with people who take substances, who use drugs and find out, you know, their story, essentially. Um, and I think also the experts through experience aspect mm. of our podcast as well. That's going to be brilliant because although we want to be interviewing drug policy experts as part of the educational informative aspect of this podcast, we want you guys, we want you to be asking the questions. We want people who use drugs to put their questions to us for us to then ask them. So, mm. and we'll be doing it in a more conversational format. And mm. that way, I just think it increases the participation, doesn't it? We both mm. agreed uh, it will amplify um, people's voices more and mm. engage engage people I think in a more innovative way yeah so it's not just what we want to know what we're interested in yeah we want to know what you as listeners want to are interested in and want to know about drug policy and yeah obviously we we will uh, our findings will help direct the podcast as well but in a way we want you to help direct the research that's yes the of participatory research it's not just sort of led by us it's mm. you're going to help shape it through kind of your questions and through shaping the podcast and, and the research in general yes so next up our debate should we reclaim the term drug or do we need to abandon it and what does this mean for drug policy i caught up with stuart taylor to debate this question Okay, so it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Stuart Taylor, who is a senior lecturer in criminal justice in the School of Justice Studies at Liverpool John Moores University. So Stuart started at JMU in 2003, and before his academic life, he worked in probation. So he's got professional and academic experience. 
His research interests include processes within the criminal justice system, the social construction of drugs and drug policy, also done work on alcohol industry, sexual offences and the nighttime economy. So Stuart and I worked together for a couple of years in the criminal justice department at JMU and we had many conversations and ramblings and debates about drugs, substances, drug policy and therefore he's perfectly placed for our first Drug Policy Voices discussion on drug terminology. So hello Stuart. Hello Rebecca, absolute pleasure to be here, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> no problem, the pleasure is all ours. So broadly we want to talk about terminology and the term drug and whether we we should reclaim that word or we should abandon it. So just to kind of contextualise then, we at Drug Policy Voices conducted a survey at the beginning of 2020, pre-COVID, I must say, um, and Melissa and I spent a long time on the wording. We spent a long time piloting that survey, um, and we know the terminology around drugs and drug policy is quite sensitive, and we use the term drugs, we use the term substances. We wanted to construct the service of people understood and um, understood it, understood the questions, but also to try and be as inclusive as possible. But this was something really, really difficult and finding that balance was really difficult within the survey. So we know people strongly identify with the term, uh, some terms like addicts or junkies or drug users or drug takers and other people totally resist those labels. So I guess there's two parts to this then. So first is around the term drug. And the second is around kind of personal identification and labelling of those who use them. So quite a big topic. Thanks for tackling that with us. So, Stuart, what do you think? Should we reclaim the term drug to include alcohol, caffeine, tobacco, sugar, or should we completely abandon that term? And if so, what should we what should we replace it with? Yeah, well, I think rather than kind of reclaim or abandon and think of it in that way, what we need to do is, is to kind of recognise the true meaning of the world. Because I'd argue that perhaps we, we never historically or contemporarily uh, have recognised the true meaning of the word. And that's because um, we've, we've, we've developed over the years a certain way of understanding what a drug is uh, and associated that word with only certain substances and certain uh, substance users. And this kind of taps into my work around the kind of drug apartheid, how we have this kind of arbitrary kind of divide between uh, substances. So we we tend to have drugs, what we associate as drugs, uh, largely being illegal drugs. And then these other substances that we kind of frame socially, culturally, politically, legally, economically as kind of non-drugs, those kind of substances such as sugar, caffeine uh, and, and so on. And the fact is, for me, is that we all consume drugs. Um, we are a society of drug consumers, but only certain people are thought of by by themselves and, and others as, as drug users in that sense. And these understandings are kind of accommodated as bios and ingrained at a very, very early age. An example here, yeah, a good, good example probably is, 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 is my niece. I remember when she was a bit younger in a primary school and she had a kind of just say no drugs event at her primary school. And she came out of it and we spoke and she kind of said that uh, she'd been told that all drug users, meaning illegal drugs, uh, were, were, were basically bad, that taking drugs was bad and that people who sold them uh, were even worse. So I took her out for the day, asked her what she wanted to do and went to a cafe. 
what do you want? A hot chocolate. Why do you want it? Because I like the tastes and it makes me feel good. And we sat there and I explained that that's because hot chocolate contained caffeine and, and sugar and it gave the energy and perked her up. Um, and that that was a drug that was equally as beneficial, but also harmful if used inappropriately as illegal drugs. So once I'd kind of declined a request for a second hot chocolate, we had a walk around town and I pointed out all the places that sold licit drugs to her. Um, which if you ever do that in your own town, it's quite it's quite a time consuming exercise. And she was rather perplexed by this because I explained that they were legal drug dealers and that that, again, equated to drug related harm similar to illegal substances. And that just reminded me of the enormity of just defining what drugs are, how they were embedded to us at a very early age. And why I think it's imperative to recognise all substances as drugs. What do you think about things like nootropics or supplements like protein powders, for example, people taking medicinal mushrooms for um, kind of energy, stress related, maybe to combat cancers and that kind of thing. Where do you think we should stop then if we're conceptualising drugs? I th- for, for me, I mean, I, th- I think as a, as a loose and working definition, which I'm very much open to challenge and kind of discussion and debate around. It's any kind of chemical substance that when used has an effect on the body. So, I mean, I bring in, you know, yes, certain illegal substances at the moment and certain legal ones. But, you know, I'd extend that to things like um, cosmetics that we use and and, and that kind of thing. I think I, th- I think that, that we have this whole spectrum of drugs and we've developed a kind of hierarchy within consumer culture of how we then place those drugs on a scale of acceptability. Firstly, whether we recognise whether they're drugs or not. And secondly, then how we perceive that uh, as as an individual drug on that scale. Some um, we uh, we prohibit and uh, um, demonise users, persecute users, marginalise, stigmatise, sterilise, even kill um, those users. Others, we simply um, accept it. We see it actually as uh, a sign of social competence, uh, a sign of social positivity um, in in that way. So for me, yeah, I think we need to recognise substances individually. Um, the, The trouble with that is that sometimes we've developed such kind of stigmatised understandings of individual substances that actually it's, it's very difficult to us to give factually informed pragmatic kind of um you know reasoning around them because because these understandings are, are so the, the parlance you we've talked about language junkie pissed roid rage sweet tooth you know any, mm. anything like this we these are part of our everyday kind of parlance around kind of drugs and drug use so i think it is important um to use drugs on on it by name not only because we're allowed to then identify that and respond to that individual drug, but also because it highlights as well the prejudices and stereotypes that all of us, me very much included within that, have around specific individual substances. I remember it during my PhD speaking to people who didn't drink, but they took ecstasy. But they would say, you know, it's not somebody that's pissed out of control every weekend. Ecstasy makes me feel in control, heightens that euphoria. I'm so you never see a angry um, ecstasy user who's beating somebody up. So they 
people compare, don't they, different drugs when they're trying to put themselves in a positive light or just explain themselves, rationalise. Do you think that's always going to exist? Or do you think that exists because of prohibition and because we've kind of polarised people in terms of legal and illegal drugs? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's probably two key factors within that. Firstly, prohibition has encouraged us to view certain drugs and certain drug users in in a specific in a specific manner. The the narrative around certain drugs and their use, whether that be particularly the the kind of high end class A drugs, as people would say, in terms of heroin, crack, cocaine, increasingly spice, being associated with a lack of control and associated with particular traits, which leads into the second kind of point. You you kind of mentioned that word then a couple of times, control, and I think that that is absolutely kind of essential because. When we view other people in society, we do so on that kind of hierarchy. We we look at other people and decide actually who we might want to be, but or equally who we might not want to be. And with kind of certain illegal drug users, we see them as being out of control. We see them um, in through a lens of kind of neoliberalism in the sense that um, they are not living the good life. They are an actual example to us. They become a, a kind of burning effigy, if you like, of a failed life because someone who's addicted to certain substances hasn't shown that control. And they this has been a net cast more widely than their drug use. It's an inability to use drugs properly. I mean, my God, look at all the drugs that are available to us in society. Why don't you choose a legal one? OK, you've chosen an illegal one, but even then, You've not been able to act responsibly and control your drug use. But that has been associated then with a variety of other behaviours which indicate a lack of control and a lack of responsibility, an inability to work, to parent, to be a respectable member of society, to contribute to society. And within that kind of consumer society, they're seen as not only kind of failed consumers in terms of their drug consumption, consumption but also living a failed life because they're not contributing to society and I think that stereotype is really strong because it allows non-drug users but also drug users to say well at least I'm not like that at least Mm -hmm. I'm able to function at least I'm able to show that control and responsibility Um, and I think that you know it it depends on we, we can say any drugs here I don't drink caffeine after 12 in the afternoon. That to me is an irresponsible choice because it's going to affect your sleeping pattern. Mm -hmm. Other people who do that, again, I I can see them on a hierarchy. That's a lack of control, a lack of responsibility. So we all view different drug users, I think, on that kind of hierarchy. And I think those issues of control and responsibility are really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think again from the interviews that I've conducted that sense of functionality and control um you know really is strongly within people's discourses whether that's kind of more explicit or explicit that somebody you know talks about their their job their career and and being able you know being successful in that way and and kind of prioritizing that in order to form this picture of some of, of the self that is beyond consumption and drug consumption uh, and you'll find kind of a lot of people, you know, you don't want to be just defined. Many people don't want to be just defined by their drug consumption, though they may take drugs. 
Uh, and I think thinking about the kind of that idea of functionality as well is is interesting, isn't it? Because you could say that it is functional for somebody to take um, heroin if they're dependent on heroin, for example. So that is functional. That could be associated with well-being, with happiness. Um, so our idea of functionality tends to exist, as you say, in this kind of neoliberal consumerist frame, even with alcohol as well. So please drink responsibly. You know, it's that idea that we must be in control. We must be in charge. However, I don't know whether you have asked students before or even colleagues, uh, you know, who, who's missed a, um, a lecture? Who's missed uh, a day at work because they were hungover? Who's, you know, not been able to function properly at work the next day? And how we view that, how that is often seen, certainly with young people, part and parcel of their growing up, of experimentation, exploration in terms of uh, cons consumption. But how that isn't afforded to other to other kind of substances, um, so cannabis, heroin, ecstasy, perhaps maybe it is. It's been really interesting being an academic in this field and a professional in this field for the last kind of twenty years because we've seen emergence of these words functionality, of pleasure, more coming to the fore and being considered kind of seriously. I, I think I think all drug use is functional. All drug mm -hmm. drugs are used for a particular function, whether that is to 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 wake you up, to make you feel better, um, you know, to uh, to 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 kind of uh, open your horizons. Um, and it's also associated with with pleasure. We use drugs for pleasurable outcomes. And, and, and I say that as much for an individual who may even be kind of dependent on a substance and using that um, for a way to. Um, cope with certain situations just because they want a really good high or to paper over the cracks of, of something that brings pleasure so I think that kind of element of functionality and pleasure should be associated with with with, with drug use that they're, they're, they're embedded but we've kind of associated it more with kind of dysfunctionality and negative mm -hmm. outcomes um, therefore pushing those aspects of kind of pleasure and, and the benefits from kind of drug use, um, which are clear for all drugs in society. All drugs in society are potentially harmful. All drugs in society are potentially pleasurable. It, it's, it's a double-edged sword, but they need to be understood that their use isn't dysfunctional in, it, in itself, um, but we've associated dysfunctionality, we've associated drugs with also these other worrying kind of problematic lifestyles that seemingly are associated kind of with them and you know this is clear you've talked about the terminology in the survey it's, it's so difficult to map a sensible path through kind of terminology that doesn't affront or offend kind of any 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 everyone and everyone because certain people majority of people understand drugs in certain ways so you need to ask questions that they that they kind of understand but the terminology and language often used even in academic research simply reinforces the dominant understandings you know phrases that drive me mad you know drug abuse drug misuse uh one of my colleagues selena goslin always says you know what is drug misuse is it kind of getting a cigarette and putting it in your ear kind of <laughs> what who says what abusing a drug is who says what a drug should or should not 
be useful. The same as problematic drug use. You know, what is problematic about that use? Is it problematic to the individual who's using the drugs or actually to the kind of wider society who actually think that that is a worrying kind of pattern of behaviour? But you also mentioned there, you know, how certain people uh, uh, within kind of uh, contemporary society um, you know, see great, great benefits and, and take pride from their drug use. I think that's really important as, as well, particularly because it highlights that divide between drugs. We've, we're currently going through, you know, this very middle class desire for ethical consumption that moves away from mass manufactured goods. Uh, and we've, we've, we've seen something as simple as I grew up in a pub. You walked in and asked for a pint of bitter. We've moved from bitter to real ale to craft ale. Now people come in and peruse the available things in front of them for 15 minutes, have a taster before they want a pint. And those people are craft ale enthusiasts. It's part of their persona. It's part of their social identity now. They go to beer festivals. They're provided with these wonderful experiences, brewery tours. You have specific off-license for that. Your Christmas stocking is ram-packed with beer mats and specialist glasses. It's part of your identity. Artisan gin lovers, Cuban cigar aficionados. These are all the same things. So for those people, it brings a degree of social identity, social status, social competence, social pride. And it's functional in that sense. It's just a shame that we can't actually be equally as proud of our uh, cannabis ecstasy or heroin use in that kind of sense. I think and I think that, yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and you can I, I always remember it at university, uh, a friend of ours who came over on the Erasmus scheme hit from Spain when we first met him he was drinking tenant super and we were all horrified age 20 that he'd be drinking tenant super but he, you know he was a young person on not much money and this he didn't have all the cultural associations that you would tenant super was something uh, that was associated with maybe street drinking and um it wasn't kind of the culturally acceptable WHD WKD and I'm showing my age now, Smirnoff Ice and all those other alka pops that were, you know, trendy at the time. But, um, but you know, you would find now with craft ale, probably those that are out matching on, on percentage of alcohol, tenant super. But, you know, there's the different cultural identifiers there in terms of what that means in terms of beer drinking. Yeah, it, uh, spot on. It is that kind of it's this dichotomy between a civilised and barbaric drug consumption, you know, in that sense. As you've noted, we've seen certain reduce the strength, certain campaigns in the UK, whereby off-licenses have been actively encouraged to take things like Tenant Super off their shelves because they're associated with problematic drinkers. But those same shops have extended the kind of uh, availability of high-strength artisan kind of products because they're used properly correctly even though they're exactly the same substance and it's that kind of an indication of how that kind of identification of inappropriate barbaric drug use has enabled us to develop a controlling system which criminalizes those we see as being problematic whilst mm -hmm. embracing the social cultural competence of those using very similar substances in in that kind of case um, who are showing um, an allegiance to the acceptable scale of, of drug use. 
you know, what what is this about? Why do we permit some things and not others? What is it for you? The term that you mentioned at the start start of this around the drug apartheid sees kind of I see drug policy as being right. It's been driven and aligned with Western capitalist interests over the years that that has aligned with them, which we are now seeing again with the movements around cannabis reform, which are not being motivated by. Um, although other people would argue with me here, any kind of wider liberalisation of drug policy or recognition of drug user rights, um, or even the kind of reflection of cannabis's level of harm. It's been driven by its popularity, its profitability, and our ability now to domestically produce that in the countries where we can legalise and therefore ensure that it's a profitable uh, kind of market. So, the development of how we view drugs and drew drug users is aligned with that, but it's also aligned with racial, uh, class-based, gender-based perceptions of, of concern about a wider behavioural pattern, a wider threat, I would argue, of certain populations. And I think those examples that we've just given there around alcohol really kind of espouse that. We know looking at the um, at the kind of statistical national statistical base in the UK, it's really interesting. We, we look at say alcohol. We know that me, as a, a professional uh, man of a certain age, uh, is probably um, drinking most frequently, and is a very risky risky kind of position. And my health is kind of worrying. Yeah, I'm also told that drinking a glass of red wine a day is healthy, but that's 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 an aside. Whereas our attention is more drawn to the younger binge drinking kind of Neanderthal who kind of prowls the streets on on a weekend, uh, provoking kind of concern. So I think that with how we view barbaric consumption, how we view drugs and drug users that prompt concern is aligned with vested economic interests, but it serves as a tool to purposely control those where drug use is an element in a wider kind of concern about their behaviour. And so often those concerns, I would argue, um, are kind of placed on the feet of these people as an individual responsibility. They are using substances either incorrectly or the wrong substances and lacking responsibility. Um, and this serves uh, two purposes. One, um, to disavow the structural inequalities of, of society. Um, that exist in many kind of socially marginalised uh, areas and individuals, and secondly, to cloak the harm of corporate um, uh, corporations um, within this field, um, and to take responsibility away from them, as you say, drink responsibly. Do you do you think things are changing? You know, thinking about cannabis social clubs, thinking about psychedelic societies, thinking about the movements you know the global changes like how optimistic are you that things are going to change for the better in terms of you know what you've been talking about in terms of kind of stigmatization and labeling and drug apartheid um, I'm an eternal pessimist I'll try and think positively about this I think those things that you've mentioned in terms of you know there's this kind of recognition uh, a re-recognition of the um, artistic side in relation to drug use of microdosing of that kind of spiritual kind of element i think that's always been there for drug users i i think there's 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 always a kind of 
if you, if you if you were stood on top of a speaker at a rave in the kind of um, in in the, in the eighties, it, it was pleasurable, it was fun, but it was spiritual as 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 well. So mm-hmm. I think that those elements have always been there, but they're seemingly becoming a little more prominent in terms of the kind of wider dialogue and and discourse uh, surrounding surrounding drugs and their use. In terms of do I think the situation is improving from a policy point of view? Well. We've got the cannabis reforms that we've seen throughout the kind of world. Yeah, less people are going to be criminalised. That's that's that that that's a positive in that sense. But for me, we're having an ongoing process where what is motivating policy is not something that's going to recognise the wider scope of harm. Arguably, uh, you know, if we move towards a decriminalised, legalised cannabis market, the stigma attached to, say, heroin or crack cocaine users becomes even more enhanced. We also continue with those places where drug reform takes place. Let's let's take take Portugal as the best example because it's decriminalised all drugs. And people say, well, has it worked? And usually they judge whether it's worked or not in terms of how many people are now using drugs. Yeah. Mm. Uh, How many people are problematic drug users? How many people are entering treatment? How many people are rates of HIV or bloodborne viruses. Let's have a look at that. All important issues, but they're all viewing that policy change through the guise of drug prohibition, the ghost of drug prohibition in, in, in that kind of sense. It shouldn't matter how many people are using the mm. drugs. We should, so it, we're not moving towards, I don't think, a greater acceptance of drug use People are infatuated by rates of drug use where reform takes place. Well, the stigma continues. It doesn't just dissipate overnight. Mm. You know, we know that the majority of people in the UK, if they wanted a gram of Coke, they could get it relatively easily. It might take some people five, six, ten phone calls, whatever. But they don't do it. Mm. Now, is that because it's illegal? Or is that because they just don't fancy doing it? Well, I'd argue that the majority don't because they just don't fancy kind of using it. And so those kind of reasons for use and non-use and that stigmatisation that also accompanies kind of their legal position, I think, kind of goes on in those places. So let's try and think of a positive uh, to to uh, to kind of end on. Um, I think that people are speaking much more um, in a much more open manner. Mm-hmm that we recognise in this kind of notion that illegal drugs can be beneficial or pleasurable. One only has to look at the kind of greater acceptance of their kind of therapeutic potentials to kind of to kind of see that. Mm. But I still see a succession of harm in the wake of how drug policy related to both legal and illegal kind of operates. Thank you very much. And thank you for being our first uh, expert guest. Love being here. Thank you very much. So listeners, what do you think? Should we reclaim the term drug or do we need to abandon it altogether? If you want to learn more about historical use of the term drug and for his argument on why he thinks we should abandon the term, then please do listen to Toby Seddon's podcast, What is a Drug?, which is available on his website, tobyseddon.com. And to contribute to our debate, visit our website, drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. You can fill in the form there or you can email us directly at drugpolicyvoices at mmu.ac.uk. But before you do get in contact, please do read our privacy and ethical statements, which are available on our website. 
We have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'd also like to thank all of our guests and research participants for their contributions. We'd also like to credit Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. And a reminder that more information can be found at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. This podcast has been produced by Neil Scott. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha,